Hey everyone, uh, welcome to another edition of Identity3, a podcast all about uh, Web3 and digital identity. My name is Nick, I'm the CEO of Doc, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Jim Sinclair. Um, I'll give you a brief intro for, for Jim, but first of all, Jim, thanks for hopping on. I hope you're well today, if not a little cold. I'm well, and I would point out, based on our last discussion, Nick, that it's a pleasure to do a podcast with you since you can pronounce my last name in the true heraldic fashion of, of years ago in the Highlands of Scotland. So it's great to be here today. Nice. If we don't get anything else right, Jim, we've always got that to, to hold on to. There we um, go. But, That's here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you jumping on. So just to give a kind of brief intro, um, uh, Jim is, um, has been in a public and private sector health technologist for over 20 to 25 years. And if you're looking at your LinkedIn profile, Jim, which I, I, I did do a bit of stalking before this, you've got experience in IT, cybersecurity, privacy, and also in kind of uh, technology partnerships. Um, background in, in Medicare and Medicaid policy, and also within uh, architecture, systems architecture, data standards, and compliance as well. Um, up until recently, you were the executive director of the Linux Foundation for Public Health, and we can touch on that a little bit later on. Um, and currently, it looks like you're in a lot of demand, Jim. You have a string of advisory and board positions with uh, coordinated care, um, health data for good, and also audit chain labs as well. So, yeah, definitely uh, in demand. And interestingly, I noticed at the bottom of your profile, um, Jim, that you are a veteran uh, and former U.S. Navy officer, having served in both active and reserve capacity. So a real um, variety of experience that you have. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's funny to kind of wake up these days and realize that the the uh, military service is now farther behind than it was during the time, you know, than, than the amount of time I served before. So Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, time moves on. Yeah. Um, so, Jim, so you and I obviously get connected um, in, in relation to, to a, a, um, a, a, some series of contacts that, that we've both been involved with at uh, the, the team at Burst IQ, and they're obviously very focused in the healthcare space, right. um, particularly in the US where you're based. Um, and, uh, you know, during that conversation, it became clear, you I mean, you've been living this stuff for 25 years and more, not just uh, not just working in it. Um, can you tell us and the people listening, why is it important that patients own their own health data? Sure. And uh, the concept of patients owning their health data, even on a global basis, much less specific here to the U.S., is, is still uh, very much in its infancy. And I can't honestly say I know exactly what direction we'll go, but just implying the principles of ownership. And let's just use GDPR as an example and the concepts of uh, the individual having the first right of refusal for how their data is shared or um, who their data controllers are and controlling that data um, in principle is, is still developing um, around healthcare, um, whether EU or US. But uh, what I think is, is important is that there is an unrecognized degree of empowerment that individuals may potentially have and whether, again, it is the U.S. or EU, there are challenges in the healthcare delivery system, in my opinion, because that data is always stewarded by someone else. And there's almost a cultural expectation that, 
I show up at the doctor, they take my information, uh, there's some sort of judgment or prognosis or diagnosis or something that, that is done. Maybe I'm given a prescription, maybe there's another procedure, but it's something that's done to me. Um, and I oftentimes make comparisons that in some ways, culturally, it isn't much different than 10,000 years ago from a shaman-like experience that I go to a shaman, he sprinkles something over me, um, makes some sort of, uh, of um, um, proclamation, and, and my ills disappear. It's not something I'm in control of. But yet compare that to open banking or finance or any other process where there's an expectation that I control my financial information, I control my bank account, I know where my money is going. And, and we haven't built that culturally into healthcare yet and only starting to get into looking at architectural techniques to do that. And, uh, and I think as we continue to pursue work that Burst IQ is doing, that you're doing at, at Block and others, that um, we have the opportunity to enable architectures that then empower people to start to consider how to control their own data and what that means for managing their healthcare. Yeah, it's really interesting, Jim. Why do you think that is? Like, why is it in other industries that we have built in uh, um, architecture and system that over time allows the user to control their own information? Yet in healthcare, that's not there, and that's not just the case in the US, where um, you know there's a lot of um, uh, kind of defragment or fragmented um, systems in place. It's, it's also the case over here as well in the UK, where it's very much centralized. Why do you think that problem exists in healthcare specifically? You know, and again, to take that global perspective, Nick, I, I think, again, it is just because regardless of the degree to which culture has advanced around controlling my information for finance, controlling my information for employment, somehow healthcare, health information has just never been presented in a way that, that an individual controls it. And again, to keep from getting into something specific around how the commercial market is set up in the US, I think there's always been an attitude the doctor knows best. I'll, I'll use this as an example, maybe one of your listeners will correct me, but as I understand it, for instance, in, in, in Germany, there have only been recently changes in terms of patient access to their data. And that, as I understand it historically, there were rules around the, the doctor actually can, uh, controlling whatever that source of information was. And, and you know, it's been within the last 12 years that there's been more of a global push for electronic healthcare records. Before that, they were paper records and, and very few people carry their own paper records around. Uh, those paper records were stored with their doctor and their doctor had purview over them. Um, we, we mentioned being in the military and there was a point when I did carry my own military records and military charts around, but I can't say I ever thought in terms of, hey, I have this and I'll only share it with whoever I want. I was there to essentially you know, curate or manage getting it from point A to point B, but someone else held that and held that data. And I think kind of skeuomorphically, the idea behind the paper record and, and a whole bunch of documents being compiled about you controlled by somebody else is carried over into the electronic day and age uh, that is that is different than before. And it's interesting, you talked about the digitizing of, of health records there, and I know that there's been a few uh, kind of fumbled attempts, at least in the UK, uh, for uh, costing many billions of dollars. The last, I, I mean, it was certainly um, many years ago, and I'm, I'm still not sure we're that far along in terms of digitizing them. That's one aspect of how do we achieve um, patients owning their own data, because it is unrealistic like you said, for people to be carrying around like cardboard folders with their right. all their healthcare information. What other aspects do you think there are? Do you know that there are, Jim, towards 
um, giving individuals control of their own health records? Yeah, good question, Nick. And I think, again, to use the electronic health record uh, as an example, there has still been this mindset around a record uh, and thinking in terms of a digital record uh, in the same um, mental framework that you would a paper record. It's a record, it's a file, it's a document. You know, we're to the day now, we're to the point now uh, that really in this day and age, we're talking about electronic data or health data. Uh, and while that permeates the conversations around standards and, and interoperability and architecture, thinking just in terms of data that, well, I control my data, whatever it is in my social media or in my, uh, my financial records, but controlling my health data and what does a data architecture look like, not just an electronic health record architecture look like or records management is another change in there. We're, we're down to, you know, individual health activities, whether it's lab results or visiting your doctor that generates data. And in that data, there may be various points that you wish to control yourself or provide consent, uh, or that you want to facilitate getting from, you know, one healthcare provider to another healthcare provider, uh, and, and being, you know, kind of in charge or in control of how that information flow works. It's interesting as we talk about this, like I, I often think about um, the enthusiasm that people involved in the space um, that know technology fairly well um, have for let's steam, you know, let's get full steam ahead with this. Let's start owning our own data right now. But in the back of my mind, I also think about um, some of the um, kind of Luddites amongst us and, and older people who are maybe not as comfortable with technology and think about how are they going to manage their digitized health records? Um, so I can see that being a real cause of friction. Um, how do you think we help patients become better prepared for kind of managing these health records? Yeah, uh, speaking to the US specifically, I think it's an issue of health literacy. So uh, that I think the, the culture of understanding and improving controlling your healthcare data comes with literacy. And for instance, uh, here in the US, we just recently uh, passed uh, the Cures Act, uh, C-U-E-R-S, um, which specifically puts in new frameworks for empowering patients to control their data, to manage how data is exchanged, requirements for data exchange that, uh, that may not be there. I, I could ask you know five people on the street and they've probably never heard of it or understand what the implications are. Um, I also think that you make a, a great point about um, what it really means to own or control your own data. And as I participated over the last couple of years with My Data Global and Gaia X and organizations such as that, you know, I, I, I triumph that sort of approach, but coming from the healthcare sector standpoint, there are practical concerns where um, it may not be just the individual, but we need to enable this sort of capability for the caregiver. Um, you know, again, in the U.S. specifically, it can be very challenging for a caregiver that has full responsibility that by circumstances has to have full responsibility for for an elderly family, a family member, a disabled family member, but legally making sure that they have control over all of that information on behalf of the person they're taking care of is still an architectural and a, and a policy challenge. Um, uh, I, I sometimes throw out, you know, my right to self-sovereign identity stops when I roll into the emergency room unconscious. Um, somebody has to be able to know who I am and get to my information. So those are practical challenges uh, that have to be considered as part of the very admirable goal to better empower people to control their identity and their data for, for, uh, for encounters and, and just managing their healthy life.
Yeah, very well put. I think as well, um, when you first, I mean, my, my entry point for decentralized identity was really cryptocurrencies primarily. And it's tough when you become your own bank, it sounds amazing, but then it becomes really stressful very quickly as well. And you know that if you lose your private keys, your your tokens are gone. And imagine losing your private keys and all your healthcare records are gone. Right. Like it really yeah. ramps up. So what, what, what do we put in place? Um, it, because that eventuality will happen. So how do we you know make sure that we have some kind of password recovery or private key recovery or something set up maybe for someone who's not um, particularly IT literate as well? So yes, certainly the barriers would seem to be kind of user experience and knowledge and also, like you say, kind of policy related, um, I think probably across the globe, not just in the US. Yeah, and I think logically the next step is um, is more of what I'm sure you've seen around hybrid environments, balances between centralized or federated um, identity and authentication with decentralized identity. Uh, and, and in doing so, um, where there still remains repositories or, or um, verifiable access points to get to your data so that if you know, heaven forbid, you, know, you lost your phone or you're just plain blank on, on what your, your password, your pass key is, um, you don't find yourself locked out of controlling, you know, critical data. Yeah, definitely. So identity is one thing, and we've, we've talked to, about that a little bit. And I think as well, it's like now you have these decentralized identity identifiers in play, what do you do with them? And so a big part of that is verifiable credentials. So you can make obviously claims about things and attach them to identities, which makes them, you know, a lot more powerful. Um, what benefit do you think things like verifiable credentials um, bring to the healthcare space, uh, Jim? Uh, over time, my opinion on verifiable credentials has has uh, kind of changed because I'm starting to look at how, for lack of a better term, technically elegant they may be to solve some of these identity and authentication problems. And one example I've used, which uh, is still early in its development, uh, very much uh, early in its, in its demonstration, though, uh, are initiatives within the U.S. and with, uh, with HL7 around what we call advanced directives. Advanced directives is the umbrella term for things like do not resuscitate or medical powers of attorney, um, things that provide medical guidance in the event that, that something happens to you and you're not able to do so on your own. What are standing documents that can be approved? And you look at it and, and every state has certain differentiation in their laws and their policies around how, say, a do not resuscitate letter is done. Some require a notary, some don't. Some require it to be you know, signed within a certain date, some don't. Moreover, maybe you have three or four historical iterations of that document. So if you suddenly present yourself in front of a doctor, which one are they supposed to go to that says, well, yeah, resuscitate me on Tuesday. Well, last Wednesday, I decided I don't want to be resuscitated. Um, so, so how does that model come together? And verifiable credentials and DIDs um, are, are a way to be able to offer an attestation of your identity and tie that credential in a you know, cryptographically secure manner back to saying, I'm Jim St. Clair, this is my do not resuscitate order that is most recent. And here is the DID verifying it's associated with this VC. Uh, and it is, you know, a legally dem demonstrable proof that you're getting the right document for the right person to follow what their wishes are. Because in most cases, obviously, healthcare organizations default to, well, life-saving measures until we can really prove this person was saying something otherwise or we have the documentation to support it. 
And as that moves more and more to electronic documentation, you know, this is potentially a very elegant solution to be able to tie that together in a, in a, uh, a cryptographically provable concept that makes me assured and makes the physician assured that, uh, that the information they have is most, uh, most accurate and up to date and has provenance that it's come from me. Yeah, that's a great perspective because when I sometimes think about um, digital records, I often think of someone leisurely going into the doctor because they have the flu and they sit there and they've got time to, I don't know, send a verifiable credential ac across containing the, the bits of information that the doctor might need to know about them. And they can look at that and diagnose them and send them off to the pharmacy with a prescription. But it's interesting, we start to think of um, using all of this technology in absolutely critical environments like do not resuscitate orders or resuscitate or all of these types of things. It really does put a different perspective on, on how these things need to be able to function at, at mass at very quick speed. Absolutely. And another challenge that we're trying to address is that of patient identity. And, and in healthcare, when we talk patient identity, it's very much concerned around um, life safety and, and proper administration of care and, and properly sharing information. Um, so that we know for sure that if, if Jim St. Clair is coming in for surgery on his right leg, we have the right Jim St. Clair and this is the right uh, procedure to be done. Uh, and, and that right now involves a whole host of processes and, and disconnected systems that have to require you to present the same information over and over again each time. Um, you know, what if we roll that into a verifiable credential that is um, from a proven issuer that is trusted by the authority to say, if I present this credential in say a biometric or something else, then you've proven I am who I am. These are my associated records that have electronic provenance and we can ensure that you're talking to the right person, which is you do more electronic data exchange, i.e. I have my records in a hospital here and I'm trying to send my records to a hospital there, um, a verifiable credential from a proven issuer that both organizations can agree to and facilitate that electronic exchange. To take a slight change of pace, we'll kind of get back into the, because the questions are, are, or your answers at least are very kind of intriguing and it's great to have like a totally different perspective on things, somebody who's been at the coal face a little bit. Um, but I, I'd noticed and when we started um, uh, kind of corresponding, Jim, uh, you are the executive director of the Linux Foundation uh, Public Health. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that organization does and, and then your kind of role within that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Linux Foundation is a global 501c3 uh, non-for-profit membership association entirely focused on uh, open source software projects and development. Uh, Linux Foundation Public Health was kind of founded out of the pandemic with support from member companies around open source uh, uh, software uh, techniques and tools for um, pandemic response, for um, um, exposure notification, uh, vaccine management, uh, etc. Um, we carried that through for a couple of years and, uh, and, and did explore some other forays into open source digital health, which is a very large global community as well. Um, but we, you know, with the change in focus around um, um, COVID and, uh, and uh, COVID response, uh, that project is, has, uh, has kind of uh, sunsetted as well. And, and some of those different open source projects moved into other areas, which I guess is a, a good definition of success. So. Yeah, it definitely is. I think COVID changed the lives of many people twice. You know, yeah. when we're going into it, it had the change. And then of course, at the kind of tail end of it, when we are kind of learning to live with it as well. 
Um, but it does look like, you know, like I was saying at the start um, of the show, that your time is, you know, pretty much taken up with um, the other projects that you have in terms of advising a lot of other uh, businesses. It seems that you like the variety of um, dipping in and out of different projects. Uh, yeah, at the moment, since moving from the Linux Foundation, I've had the opportunity and the pleasure to engage in uh, in advisory work in a, in a couple different roles and uh, coordinated care, which is highlighted on my LinkedIn profile. Uh, they're a small startup uh, located in Atlanta, Georgia, and our particular focus is opportunities for digital health and open source digital health. Uh, for rural healthcare, um, not only to help rural healthcare survive, which in the U.S. is a significant challenge, um, but also to help it thrive and find new models for economic development uh, for rural healthcare using uh, health IT and, and digital health. One of the challenges that rural communities across the U.S. face is what we call economic extraction. You know, a big company from outside the county or rural area moves in. Uh, and they may provide jobs and they might provide a base for economic uh, activity, but the profits, the focus of the organization, the P&L, all go back to someplace else. So finding ways to develop, you know, self-organizing economic uh, uh, areas within rural communities is critically important. And of course, a hospital oftentimes serves as an economic generator. It's, got, it's seeing the folks in that rural community. Uh, it is employing people locally. They reside locally. Uh, it provides services back into the community. And so it's a, a great area to explore for improving economic incentivization. Yeah, it's definitely one thing to have a solution for something, but there needs to be, quote unquote, a business model to go around it as well um, that, that benefits right. the people in that ecosystem. So that's often a part that, that's maybe forgotten, um, but obviously kind of not in this case. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to hear you talk, Jim, about um, the work with the Linux Foundation and open source software. What do you see as the kind of, the, I mean, the, the benefits for open source software are, are, are relatively obvious in terms of, Lots of different organizations and companies being able to share not only ideas, but it be able to share actual potentially code that they don't have to write that someone else has written that they could you know integrate into their solution that's potentially documented for them as well. Um, so those benefits are probably quite obvious. What would you see as the challenges for um, using you know open source within healthcare? Uh, yeah, from a U.S. perspective, one of the biggest challenges is just understanding and, and cultural expectations. Um, uh, this might be a bit controversial, but I have been I have been open in some of my comments uh, elsewhere about let's take a, a question around um, uh, maternal health and maternal health services uh, as part of planning for um um, labor and delivery and care. And I've seen the question raised, you know, what startups are focused on problems with, uh, with maternal health? Uh, I would come back and say maternal health is a population health issue and should be addressed through digital public goods. And for those that aren't familiar with the Digital Public Goods Alliance, uh, I think that's a, a great place to, uh, to take a look at what their model is based on the philosophy with the UN that Public goods are things that are provided for the public infrastructure, whether it's water projects, transportation, and healthcare fits in there. And it's a recognition that population health is a public good issue or an issue of public goods for, for public society. So shouldn't there be digital public goods that help support that? And those might be electronic health records. They might be health information exchange. They may be patient monitoring. But it's first and foremost taking the approach that Healthcare issues are not just something that are designed as economic incentives or something that drive, you know, uh, monetary investment, um, but they're population health issues and addressed at a population health level. 
I think my next question was actually going to be around the, the kind of global standards and stuff around uh, around healthcare data, but I think you've kind of partly answered that one there, and, and in some of your other answers as well, um, ensuring that that there's an accepted way for, for example, you know, records to be transferred that obviously protect the patients and and the the privacy and security of their information. Would you want to add anything to that question or to that point, Jim? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was that was well said, Nick. And I will call out specifically um, Health Level Seven HL7.org is the international standards body for uh, for health data. Um, they work very closely with ISO uh, TC215 as the international standard for uh, use of health data. Um, currently, in in 2022, we're using uh, or uh, advancing the use of Fast Health Information Resources or FHIR, uh, FHIR, uh, and of course that has all kinds of fun with spinning things like uh, setting healthcare on fire and so forth and so on. Um, but that is uh, that is going through a process of electronic uptake in the U.S. and its uh, digital health systems, and is also uh, beginning to be adopted uh, internationally as well. I think that's the important thing as well. Like, it still seems that there's a lot of um, our health systems are still very siloed within the countries that we're in. I know that sometimes the the EU is trying to um, become better at that and, and pull together whatever 27 member states uh, into one kind of healthcare system, but it's still very, very fragmented. And certainly when you start to even hear you talk, um, Jim, and it's you're obviously very kind of US orientated just based on where you live and your where you work as well. These things need to work internationally, uh, which is certainly challenging. There is, and there are parallels between the US model and, and other models. Matter of fact, I'd, I'd recommend for the audience, there's a book called The Healing of America, which of course is very US centric, but in the course of uh, putting the book together, the author goes to other countries uh, all using the same procedure, a shoulder operation to compare how that service is delivered, uh, how they receive care, how it's paid for, what the respective uh, uh, health benefits are in that country, whether it's a universal health coverage or individual insurance. And you get to compare the models to understand where there are strengths and weaknesses in, in each. Um, it is called out that kind of the U.S. has the hybrid system with the worst choices for, for each one. But that doesn't mean that there aren't, uh, aren't also considerations for the fundamental business process for how healthcare is delivered, whether it's in Germany, the U.K., Spain, France, the U.S., uh, Japan, China, etc. Uh, and understanding how those business processes end up affect you're actually seeing a doctor in the type of care you receive. So as we start to... Um look to maybe towards the future a little bit, Jim. Um, I mean, the world is, is rapidly becoming more digitized, not necessarily always in the healthcare sector like we spoke about, but um, you know, we're putting more and more data online, we're becoming more and more comfortable with technology, um, uh, you know, all of us are. What do you see the healthcare organizations struggling most with in terms of digitization? Great question, and I'd actually throw out on a global scale, the challenge that I see in the next 10 years is just the demographic challenge of having uh, having doctors. Um, uh, the, the US uh, is not alone, uh, and in fact, uh, it, it, it may have uh, some better and some worse challenges than others in terms of just the demographics of their population as a whole, and what that means for the workforce, and then what that means for healthcare in particular. 
Uh, an example I use is that we have the American Association of Family Practitioners, of which the median age is 55. Well, that basically means that in 10 years, the median age of the entire association is going to be at the retirement age. Um, uh, we have challenges with our uh, uh, number of young people in Generation X, Generation uh, Y and Z and, and millennials uh, uh, matriculating through to become doctors or clinicians. Uh, the numbers that will be available to serve that growing aging population. Uh, and it actually kind of goes back to something I used to say when I was a consultant in public sector working in robotic process automation. I would tell an audience in the public sector, robots are not here to take your jobs. Robots are here to do your work because you won't be here anymore. And so what do we need to start thinking about when we have, you know, uh, a relative amount of time to consider this? Um, before it's another hair on fire problem to say, hey, 10 years from now, we're going to have 20% less doctors or 20% less oncologists. What automated procedures do we consider? How does AI come into that? Uh, what kind of virtual care do we consider? Uh, how do we use new staffing models to consider all of that? And of course, digital health plays a critical role in all of that. And, and that is only now in some corners being considered. Um, the African National Development Bank Group has a healthcare strategy for 2030, and their underlying vision is virtual care first, in-person only when necessary. You can argue all day as to whether or not that's the best way to receive care. And certainly, if you ask 10 doctors, they'll give you 10 different perspectives. But it's taking kind of that line in the sand that says, this is a way we're going to have to do healthcare by 2030. And how do we build an optimized infrastructure to support that? It's the fascinating thing about systems architecture. I, I always find is how far ahead um, people are needing to think and strategize about these different things in order that the sufficient resources are put in place now. And right. it's partly exciting, but partly for those involved, terrifying. Uh, I think you phrased it as a hair on fire moment, like it most certainly is. And uh, yeah, it must be difficult to sleep at night with some of those uh, questions burning on your mind. Uh, you know, from a personal perspective, it literally comes down to considering where am I going to live, where where will colleagues live and that sort of thing to still have access to certain healthcare and specialty care or, you know, on a positive note, what can we do now to contribute to new infrastructure models, leveraging startups, leveraging open source and new ecosystems to at least still try and deliver care in a way that we're used to seeing it nowadays in certain areas? We, we are we here in the U.S. already have a problem with health deserts, which is as hospitals uh merge and there's new acquisitions and, and older hospitals close, now geographic areas may not have access to doctors uh, like they did before because hospitals are closed. That's only going to get more exacerbated when there aren't staff in any of those hospitals. So w what should we try and think about now? What does the, the next evolution look like before, well, before it's more of a crisis than it already is? So. Well, let me ask that then as my, the kind of final question I've got, um, Jim, what, what do you think uh, the healthcare system will look like, and we can be kind of US specific about this. What does it look like in 10 years time? So in 2032, 2033, what, what are we looking at? Yeah, so I think at a positive note, we will continue to the trend towards digital transformation, no question. Um, regardless of incentive models, I think that uh, virtual care, telehealth, telemedicine is here to stay. Uh, that will continue to evolve both in terms of, of the platforms you use and, and how that's engaged. I like to think about virtual care not only from like a, you know, you and me moments on the computer and telehealth, 
uh, or a tele-engagement, but also asynchronous communications. Do you have a chat bot that's talking to you when you're not talking to the doctor? You know, is there another source of data that you're using? Is you're, are you getting inputs from your iPhone to help manage your healthcare on a daily basis? Um, that's kind of the positive side. And then as I've already highlighted, we need to advance those sort of things and sort of, of ways to address telemedicine and virtual care in the absence of just having lots of physical facilities, brick and mortar buildings that we can go to anytime, which also means I think ultimately we're going to be a lot more in charge of our own healthcare because we can't simply put it off to going to our local doctor or going to a brick and mortar facility anymore. You know, whenever we, we have a, a cough or a sniffle because those facilities may not be there. So there's gonna be a whole new level of care you've gotta to help to, to manage on your own, which I guess kind of brings us back full circle to where we started about owning your own healthcare data. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating, Jim, like to, to talk to you. Um, it's obviously an area that you've got a huge amount of domain expertise from lots of different perspectives as well. And it's been really enlightening uh, to, to hear about all this. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, tell our listeners about or anything else that you wanted to cover? Um, no, but I'm always open for anyone that uh, that wants to talk more about healthcare. I have found for, for quite a bit of time um, that I have been kind of bridging two worlds between identity and Web3 and decentralized identity and what it means for health and health IT and, and how to tie those together transformationally. Um, there are obviously, like yourself, a tremendous number of uh, resources and individuals working in Web3 and identity. Um, they aren't all paralleled into the digital health space. So happy to kind of continue to build those bridges and get more crossroads built between the two. That's amazing. Yeah, we can certainly put your information into the kind of notes um, when we put it online as well, Jim. So, um, yeah, definitely recommend uh, touching base because uh, you've got a huge wealth of knowledge there. But, Jim, uh, all that's left is for, yeah, for me to thank you very much for, for uh, coming on and joining us today. It's been a, really a great episode and I'm sure we'll be speaking again. Absolutely. Thank you again. And of course, given the time, happy Christmas, happy holidays. And uh, I hope wish the best for a proper, a prosperous new year for everyone. Likewise, Jim. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you.